Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Revelation, Revolution. As all of you who have been paying any attention whatsoever to the Mormon scene for the past two years since Russell M. Nelson became president of the church, you know that he has been spitting out revelations like hell isn't having any. Every general conference, he has received new revelations about things to do with the church, adjustments to be made to different programs, policies that need to be tweaked, and nomenclature that needs to be observed. It is this remarkable two-year period of President Nelson's administration that I refer to as the Revelation Revolution. We haven't seen so many revelations claimed by a president of the church since the days of Joseph Smith. From the days of Joseph Smith to the days of President Nelson, there has been almost a complete dearth of claimed revelations by presidents of the church. Now certainly, Brigham Young claimed to receive as revelation the Adam-God theory, but that didn't last long. That got done away with by the church and is currently denounced and denied by leaders of the church as I have shown in previous podcasts. There was a quote-unquote revelation received by Wilford Woodruff in 1890, ending, and I'll put ending in quotation marks there, ending the practice of polygamy in the LDS church. There was another revelation received in 1978 by President Kimball, lifting the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. And in 1918, President Joseph F. Smith claimed to receive a vision of the spirit world, which was written down and then canonized as section 138, of the Doctrine and Covenants. And I suppose that section 136 qualifies as a revelation from Brigham Young. But really, other than that handful of examples, there has been pretty much no claimed revelation in the LDS Church between Joseph Smith and Russell M. Nelson. But now, President Russell M. Nelson has claimed to receive so many revelations in the past two years that the sheer number of those revelations claimed dwarfs the number of revelations claimed by all presidents of the church prior to him with the exception of Joseph Smith. I want to talk a little bit tonight about those revelations and specifically one of those claimed revelations. And what I want to do is add something to the conversation that I do not think has been talked about anywhere before. It is a piece of evidence that should be considered in weighing his claims of revelation and in trying to find out why it is, to the best of our ability, that President Nelson is claiming revelation for policy changes and structural reorganizations, even though very similar and almost identical restructuring of organizations has occurred in the past without any claim being made by the president of the church at the time that it was being done by inspiration or revelation. We'll get to that specific example here in a few minutes, but first, I want to make a few announcements. Number one, you will remember that a couple of weeks ago, I did a three podcast series dealing with a textual analysis of the Savior's ministry to the Nephites as recorded in 3 Nephi chapters 11 through 27. This was based on research that I had done quite a number of years ago, and I had posted it publicly on a blog, but after that, done nothing with it. I moved on to other things and basically forgot about it until I resurrected it for use on the podcast. But as I went back, and read through it on the air, I was struck that this was really pretty good stuff, and I said that it should be published. Well, in the past couple of days, I have gone back over that material, and in the spare moments that I have had here and there during the course of the day, I have revised it, I have modified it, I have reformatted it, and I wanted to announce to you that yesterday afternoon, I submitted it to some appropriate publications for consideration. I expect it will take some time before I hear back from them, but rest assured, I will let you know what comes of that and whether that paper is going to be published in an academic journal. 
So I'm very excited about that. It's been a while since I was published. I was published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies back in 1993, again in 1994. I was then published in BYU Studies in 2006 and again in 2014, so it has been six years since any of my research has been published in an academic journal. I have to admit, I'm a little bit excited about it. So we will see where that goes, and once again, I will let you know as soon as I hear anything on that score. Number two, over the past weekend, I was out shopping at Fred Meyer. Yes, I did have a mask on. We continue to be in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And today's date is Wednesday, April 29th, 2020. The reason I keep announcing that we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic is not because I think you don't know it, but it's because in the back of my mind, I realize that not everybody is going to hear this podcast when it's released. There may be people who will hear it a year from now, maybe two years from now, maybe 20 years from now. And it is for those people in the future who are going to be listening to this podcast that I keep reiterating the refrain that we're in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic because they won't know about it when they listen to the podcast. And this is my way of reminding not you, but them of this fact that we are in the midst of a coronavirus worldwide pandemic. And many, if not most of my listeners are currently sheltering at home and that I am now in my sixth week of producing new material, new podcasts every weekday at Radio Free Mormon in my effort to help those of you in some small way who are sheltering at home. But as I say, this past weekend, I was shopping at Fred Meyer and I did have my mask on and I was very happy to see in the bookshelves at the checkout counter that there was a new book out by Stephen King. Stephen King is one of my favorite authors. I have been reading his book since 1985 when I started with a borrowed copy of Skeleton Crew. After that, I was hooked. And I have read pretty much everything that Stephen King has written, and some of it twice. Longtime listeners to this program will remember that at one time I even quoted a passage from his book, It, in support of some point or other that I was making that had to do with the LDS Church. Well, this new book by Stephen King, which of course I had to grab immediately, is titled, If It Bleeds. And when I got it home, I opened it up and I found out that this is not a novel. This is a collection of four short stories, similar to the four short stories that he published back in the 1980s under the title Different Seasons. Two of the short stories in that book, Different Seasons, came to have a life of their own and were made into very, very popular movies. His story titled The Body got made into the very famous and very good movie Stand By Me. And another short story in that book was made into yet another very popular movie called The Shawshank Redemption. I think the title of the story was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, but they just cut Rita Hayworth off for the title for the movie. I can understand why. But this past Sunday, I opened up this new book, If It Bleeds, and I read the first short story. I've got to tell you, I was blown away. I was so delighted because this is classic Stephen King. It is one of the best short stories I have ever read by Stephen King, and I am happy to say that even this late in his writing career, he is still able to create such a masterpiece of a story. Oh, and the name of the story is Mr. Harrigan's Phone. And we learn a number of things from this story. Mr. Harrigan is a very old, somewhat mysterious, but definitely very rich man who has moved into a rural neighborhood about a quarter mile up the road from a young man 
who is telling this story. And Mr. Harrigan has this young man come over to his house a couple of hours every other day or so simply to read to him. Now, I'm not going to go over the entire story here. I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts. But one thing I will say that we learned from this book is that if you have a friend who is old or even a family member who is very old, in this case, it's an old man who becomes a friend of this boy and that old man ends up passing away, you should probably not put a cell phone into his inside jacket pocket as he lays in the coffin during his funeral. Now, this young boy did it with all the best of intentions because he knew that the cell phone, which was a gift from the young boy to the old man, was very dear to the old man. And so this young boy wanted him to be able to have it with him in his casket. Now, if you've made that first mistake of putting a cell phone into the coat pocket of a person who's just about to be buried, the second thing that you definitely, definitely don't want to do is then call that cell phone from your cell phone in the middle of the night to hear the voice recording so that you can hear the voice of this old man who is your dear friend once again. That's probably not a good idea, at least not in the world of Stephen King. Now more than that, I'm not going to say, except for the fact that that happens halfway through the story. And believe me, things start picking up from there. But even more important than that lesson is the scene that happens earlier on when this boy is trying to give a gift of this cell phone. It's a new phone. It's 2004 at the time, I believe. A new smartphone to this old man as a present. It is new technology. The old man is hesitant to accept it. He eventually does when he sees that the stock market can be accessed through an app on the phone, which is a minor miracle as far as this old man, Mr. Harrigan, is concerned. But initially, he's reluctant to take it, and he declines, and he explains to the boy the reason why, and in so doing, he quotes from Henry David Thoreau. He explains to the boy why he doesn't want to have this newfangled technology on his iPhone, and he says, once again quoting Thoreau, that we don't own things. Things own us. The boy, of course, doesn't understand, so the man explains. He says, well, look, if I get a television set, he doesn't have a TV in his house, if I get a television set, then I am going to feel that I need to watch it. And it's going to take time away from my life. If I get a radio, he doesn't have a radio either. If I get a radio, I'm going to feel like I need to listen to it. And if I take your cell phone, then I'm going to feel like I need to spend time accessing the apps and different information that you're showing me I can access on this smartphone. And in this way, we don't own things. Things own us. And when I read that, I was reminded of another quote from Henry David Thoreau along the same lines. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone. Yes, that's Henry David Thoreau, all right. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone. And when I read the quote in the Stephen King story about how we don't own things, things own us, it struck me again how deep and penetrating Henry David Thoreau's insights were how much applicability they have in my life, and I wanted to share it with you in case it might have some application in your life as well. Okay, so those are the only announcements for tonight. Let's get right on to the subject of tonight's podcast, The Revelation Revolution. Now, it has sometimes been said that we can look back at the administrations of different presidents of the LDS Church and identify a specific theme. This goes back at least as far as the first president that I knew when I joined the church in 1978, and that was Spencer W. Kimball. His main thrust was, of course, missionary work. He was famous for saying, lengthen your stride. The next president of the church, who took over from President Kimball, I believe in 1985, was Ezra Taft Benson. And his main message was focusing on the Book of Mormon. After President Benson was the rather short 
presidency of Howard W. Hunter, but even though his tenure as president was short, he managed to establish a message of focusing on temple work. Then came President Gordon B. Hinckley, and I'm honestly not exactly sure what the main focus of President Hinckley's presidency was, but I do know that during his presidency, the LDS Church was unprecedentedly open, at least in the way that the president of the church communicated with the outside world. I do not believe we had ever had a president of the church who was willing to go on nationally televised TV shows such as Larry King or be interviewed by national publications such as Time Magazine. But President Hinckley was not reluctant to do so, and I remember feeling a great deal of pride as a member of the church at having a president and prophet who was willing to go out there in such public forums, submit himself to questions. Oh, and 60 Minutes too, 60 Minutes. He was on 60 Minutes, right. But submit himself to questions from non-members, even from people whose career was asking questions, investigative reporters such as Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, or Larry King on The Larry King Show, or even reporters from Time Magazine. We had never had a prophet like that prior to President Hinckley, and after President Hinckley, we have not had a president again who was willing to do that. Then came President Monson, and I think that President Monson's 10-year presidency is probably characterized by the rescue. And I think that what lay behind that was mainly that during his presidency, we were beginning to see an awful lot of members leaving the church. And his idea of the rescue was to send members out after those people who had left the church with the hope of bringing them back. But now we are into President Nelson's administration. And I am not sure that I could ever possibly identify one single thing that is the focus of his administration. Because there's not one thing there seem to be a million things. He has been president of the church for only two years, and last night when I was trying to think about all the different changes he's made in the practices and policies and nomenclature of the church, I had difficulty listing them all, and I'm paying attention. And one wonders sometimes whether all of these changes that President Nelson is making are like rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It also reminds me of yet another quote from Henry David Thoreau, this one quite famous, and I'm sure you've heard of it. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to the one who is striking at the root. Well, if the evil that the LDS Church is facing currently is the hemorrhaging of members of the church, then I don't see all these multitudinous changes that President Nelson is making as striking at the root of the problem. Instead, I see him as one who is simply hacking at the branches. And when I got to my underground bunker this morning, I thought, you know, if I can't come up with a good list of everything that President Nelson has done, all the different changes that he has made, and by the way, he claims that each and every one of these changes is the result of revelation, that's what's striking about it. Other presidents of the church have made changes, but all the changes that President Nelson makes are called revelation. But I thought when I got here that perhaps somebody else had already done this work of listing the different changes that President Nelson had made. And I didn't find a current list, but what I did find out was an article that was printed in the church news listing the different changes that President Nelson had made during the first year of his administration. And they counted 15 different changes that President Nelson had made during that brief period of time. This from an article dated January 15, 2019 in the Church News and available on the Church website. Here we have the following. January 14th marks one year since President Russell M. Nelson became the 17th prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As this historic anniversary approaches, we thought it would be fitting to take a look back at some of the church's announcements throughout the past year. Now, I'm not going to read this whole article. I'm just going to hit the bullet points. Number one, priesthood quorums 
are restructured. You will remember that this was one of the first changes that President Nelson made. And I believe that this was during the very first general conference in which he was president of the church, and it was in the priesthood session of that general conference of April 2018. And that was where they basically did away with the high priest group in every ward and combined the high priest with the elders quorum. This is a change that I'm going to come back to later in this program, and this is the change I'm going to focus on and compare it to a similar type of administrative change that was made back in the 1980s. But number two was ministering replaces home and visiting teaching. And as best as I could tell, what this change amounted to was that home and visiting teaching, you were supposed to visit your assigned families once a month. Ministering now, you're only supposed to visit them once every three months, and you don't have to actually visit them at all. You could just send them a text or make a phone call, maybe send them a letter, and we would call it good. It seemed to be not only changing the name of home teaching and visiting teaching, it seemed to be lowering the bar on what was required. Number three was the church ended its relationship with the Boy Scouts at the end of 2019. And as a result, the church created new children and youth development programs. Number four, there were updates that were announced to the church hymn book and also to the children's songbook. I've got to admit, I had missed that one. Number five, there were new guidelines for youth bishop interviews, which were established. Thank you, by the way, Sam Young. Sam Young is not mentioned as the impetus for this change in this article, but I think we all know that he was the one who caused it to happen. Number six was calling the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by its full name. Oh boy, do we know about that one. Calling it the Mormon Church? Victory for Satan. And once again, let me just repeat the words that President Nelson used when he introduced this change, this focus, this obsession of using the entire name of the church every time we refer to it. He said, the Lord has impressed upon my mind the importance of the name he has revealed for his church. And so this is an impression that President Nelson claims comes from God, i.e. its revelation. Number seven, so long snail mail. Mission calls will be posted online. Number eight, gone are the days of the Motab. The church announces a revised name for the choir. Number nine, home-centered and church-supported program begins. 10. President Nelson announces 19 new temples. Now, I'm not really sure that's fair to include that in this list. I suppose it's okay. I think they're trying to pad the numbers, but it gives a list of the 19 new temples that President Nelson announced in his first year as president. Number 11. Priesthood leaders announced discontinuance of major church pageants. Remember that? Gone is the Camorra pageant. Gone is the Manti pageant. Number 12. Changes to primary progression. Young men priesthood ordination and youth temple recommends. I won't get into the details of that. They're not really important for purposes of this podcast, but you can look at this yourself if you want to go to the church website and look up this article from which I'm reading. Number 13, sister missionaries can now wear dress pants. Number 14, the first presidency releases a statement on temples. And this was at the very beginning of 2019. This is where they changed some of the language in the temples. They don't talk about the change in the language of the endowment in this article, but they just refer to it obliquely by saying the First Presidency releases a statement on temples. And finally, number 15, new missions and boundary realignments. Well, that's a nice way of saying the church is shrinking, so we're having to combine missions at a rate that is greater than any new missions are being created. I've talked about that in a prior podcast as well. 
going to a Salt Lake Tribune article posted in June of 2019. So this article was published six months after this one-year review that I just referred to. We can't forget that he also shortened church meetings from three hours to two hours. That's another change. He made it so that missionaries can call home weekly instead of twice a year. Service missions are now available to some young people instead of proselytizing missions. A new planning tool was made available to help young adults prepare for missionary service. Oh yes, and couples can now get married in the temple immediately after a civil wedding ceremony instead of waiting for a year to get sealed in the temple if they choose to be married civilly prior to their temple marriage. Women with children under 18 can now be temple volunteer workers and single men can now be temple volunteer workers. And we shouldn't overlook the publication of the new history of the church titled Saints. I think the first two volumes of that have now hit the stands and are available in hard copy as well as in digital copy on the church website. The church debuted a new website to help people struggling with pornography, and the church's apostles are now on Instagram. Oh, and last but not least, we can't leave out what is perhaps the most important change that Russell M. Nelson made. We recall that back in November of 2015, the church instituted a policy labeling anybody who was in a gay relationship or gay marriage as apostate and forbidding children of such people from receiving a name and a blessing, being baptized, or receiving the priesthood or even going on a mission until and unless they renounced the offending parents' lifestyle and received special permission from the First Presidency. Once again, that was in November of 2015. We also remember that two months later in January of 2016, Russell M. Nelson claimed that this new policy was revelation. This was remarkable, and I've talked about this several times before, but the reason it was remarkable is because Russell M. Nelson wasn't the president of the church. Thomas S. Monson was the president of the church. At no time did President Thomas S. Monson claim this was a revelation. At no time did anybody else claim this was a revelation. The one person in church leadership who claimed that this was a revelation was Russell M. Nelson, and he did this in January 2016. I'm not sure that I know of any other time in church history where somebody other than the church president through whom this revelation allegedly came announced it was a revelation on behalf of the church president, like Russell M. Nelson did in 2016. It was an act of unmitigated chutzpah. I was immediately reminded of Alexander Haig saying he was in charge back when President Reagan got shot. As of now, I am in control here in the White House, pending return of the vice president, and I'm in close touch with him. If something came up, I would check with him, of course. Whatever else you can say about the subject, it was clearly very important to Russell M. Nelson to label this new policy as a revelation, which he did in January of 2016, and then the reversal of that policy after Russell M. Nelson became president. And that was back in April of 2019 that this revelation was rescinded. And not only was the original policy claimed to be revelation by Russell Nelson, but the reversal of that policy was also claimed to be Revelation by Russell M. Nelson. I think I talked about that more fully in my podcast titled President Nelson Jumps the Shark. But even looking up online, the Salt Lake Tribune article about that reversal, the headline to that article reads, LDS Church Dumps Its Controversial LGBTQ Policy Cites Continuing Revelation from God. I sometimes look at these two revelations together, both the revelation instituting the policy and the revelation reversing the policy just a little bit over three years later, and I think of it as the hokey pokey revelation. You know, 
You keep the gay folks in, you throw the gay folks out, you keep the gay folks in, and you shake them all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. I made that up. Okay, so there's a smattering of all the different changes. And once again, I've only gone up with lists that were made effective as of June of last year. It's been almost a full year since then. And there have been additional changes that have come along. So it's hard to actually come up with one single focus that would define President Nelson's administration and why it is that I think that overall his administration should be characterized as a revelation revolution. So now let's go back to that very first change that I talked about, the restructuring of the priesthood quorums. This is one of the first changes that President Nelson made during his administration. And once again, it used to be, and I'm going to have to say this now, for people who maybe are not going to church, for people maybe in the future who won't even remember that this happened, because it will be so far down the line that it will be just a footnote in history. But up to the point that President Nelson made this change, we had two primary priesthood groups for adults. Now, of course, you've got the priesthood groups for the young men. You've got the teachers, the deacons, and the priests. But for adults, you had elders quorum and high priests group. The elders went to the elders quorum and the high priests would go to the high priest group. Now, without going into too much of the nuts and bolts of church organization, the elders quorum was called the elders quorum because there was a president of the elders quorum in every ward. And the president of the elders quorum held keys over that elders quorum. That's why he's called an elders quorum president. But in the high priest group, it was different because it's not a high priest quorum in every ward. In every ward, it was simply a high priest group. The head of the high priest group was not a president in every ward. Instead, he was called the high priest group leader. But in every other way, it functioned in a similar manner. He would have two counselors. He might have a secretary but he was not the president of the high priest group. It wasn't a quorum in the ward. It was the high priest group. Now, my understanding of church government is the reason for that difference is that there was a high priest quorum, but it was not in every ward like the elders were and continue to be. Instead, the high priest quorum existed on a stake level. So in other words, all the high priests in the state constituted a quorum and the state president is the president of the high priest quorum. Now, if I'm wrong about that, you can correct me. But there's a reason I go into this detail about the organization of the high priest versus the organization of the elders. And before I get to that reason, let's go over once again what it was that President Nelson's change did to the high priest. It basically got rid of the high priest groups in every ward. There are no longer any high priest groups. There will still be high priests, obviously, such as the bishop has to be a high priest and his counselors have to be high priests in every ward. And those who had previously been ordained to be high priests will continue to be high priests, only there's not going to be a high priest group for them to meet in separately from the elders quorum. They're just going to meet with the elders quorum now. So what this change did was got rid of the high priest group and instead now everybody who is a priesthood holder who is an adult is going to meet with the elders quorum. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about how it was that this was introduced because once again, as with pretty much all of these changes that President Nelson announces or has somebody else announce for him, revelation or inspiration from God is claimed to be the source of 
the change and this change is no different. Here is what Russell M. Nelson said when he announced this change during the general priesthood session at the April 2019 General Conference on Saturday, March 31st. He called it a significant restructuring of ward and stake Melchizedek priesthood quorum. See, the stake Melchizedek priesthood quorum, that's the high priest. The ward Melchizedek priesthood quorum was the elders quorum. And he said that the purpose of this was to help Melchizedek priesthood holders accomplish the work of the Lord more effectively. Because obviously up till then, they had not been accomplishing the work of the Lord as effectively under the former system as they would be now under his new system. But most importantly here, he said, these modifications have been under study for many months. We have felt a pressing need to improve the way we care for our members and report our contacts with them. And then he went on to say, these adjustments are inspired of the Lord. That's where he cites the divine revelation from God as being the motivating factor for this restructuring of the priesthood quorums, for getting rid of the high priest group and now having them all meet with the elders quorum. Tonight, we announce a significant restructuring of our Melchizedek priesthood quorums to accomplish the work of the Lord more effectively. In each ward, the high priests and the elders will now be combined into one elders quorum. This adjustment will greatly enhance the capacity and the ability of men who bear the priesthood to serve others. Prospective elders will be welcomed in and fellowshiped by that quorum. In each stake, the stake presidency will continue to preside over the stake high priest quorum. But the composition of that quorum will be based on current priesthood callings, as will be explained later. Elder D. Todd Christofferson and Elder Ronald A. Rasband of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will now teach us more about these important adjustments. These modifications have been under study for many months. We have felt a pressing need to improve the way we care for our members and report our contacts with them. To do that better, we need to strengthen our priesthood quorums to give greater direction to the ministering of love and support that the Lord intends for His saints. These adjustments are inspired of the Lord. These adjustments are inspired of the Lord. These adjustments are inspired of the Lord. President Nelson then handed it off to Elder D. Todd Christofferson and Elder Ronald A. Rasband to give further details about the changes in this regard. At the end of his comments about this new change, Elder D. Todd Christofferson stated that this is the Lord's will. See, Elder D. Todd Christofferson also plays the revelation card here. The First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the Presidency of the Seventy have considered these adjustments over an extended period of time. With much prayer, careful study of the scriptural foundation of priesthood quorums, and confirmation that this is the Lord's will, we are moving forward with unanimity in what is in reality one more step in the unfolding of the Restoration. The Lord's direction is manifest, and I rejoice in it as I bear witness of Him, His priesthood, and your ordinations in that priesthood 
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. So not once, but twice, Elder D. Todd Christofferson underscores the claim that this change in the priesthood quorums is the result of revelation from God. Let's see what Elder Rasban had to say on the subject. Ah, in his very first paragraph, he says, My beloved brethren of the priesthood, it is with great humility that I stand before you on this historic occasion under assignment by our dear prophet and president, Russell M. Nelson. How I love and sustain this wonderful man of God and our new First Presidency. I add my witness to that of Elder D. Todd Christofferson and my other brethren of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles that the changes announced this evening are the will of the Lord. As stated by President Nelson, this is a matter that has been prayerfully discussed and considered by the senior brethren of the Church for a long time. The desire was to seek the Lord's will and strengthen the quorums of the Melchizedek Priesthood. Inspiration was received, and this evening our Prophet made known the will of the Lord. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants the Prophets. How blessed we are to have a living Prophet today. So, not only President Nelson saying that this is inspired of God, but D. Todd Christofferson saying it's the will of God, and Elder Ronald Rasban saying this is the will of God. In the mouths of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And in the Sunday afternoon session, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk at the beginning of which he simply gushed over this fire hose of revelation being received by President Nelson, where he said, To paraphrase Ralph Waldo Emerson, the most memorable moments in life are those in which we feel the rush of revelation. President Nelson, I don't know how many more rushes we can handle this weekend. (laughs) Some of us have weak hearts. But as I think about it, you can take care of that too. What a prophet. Oh, and then he goes on to add his testimony. In the spirit of President Nelson's marvelous declarations and testimonies last night and this morning, I bear my own witness that these adjustments are examples of the revelation that has guided this Church from its beginning. They are yet more evidence that the Lord is hastening his work in its time. So there's a fourth statement by a leader of the church that this adjustment to the priesthood quorums was the result of direct revelation. Now, why have I spent so much time establishing the fact that this change, that getting rid of the high priest's state quorum and combining them with the elders' quorum is claimed to be revelation? Well, here's why. Because back in the 1980s, an almost identical move was made by the president of the church, the president of the church at that time being Ezra Taft Benson. And I want to compare how that almost identical restructuring by President Benson was announced compared with the way this new structuring of the priesthood quorums was announced in 2018. But first, I have to take you back to the way priesthood was when I joined the church. When I joined the church, there was not simply the elders quorum and the high priest group. There was another quorum for adult priesthood holders, and that quorum 
was the 70s quorum. Today we just have 70s that are general authorities, but back then 70s were also on a stake level. And the way the 70s quorum was organized back then was pretty much the way that the high priest quorum were organized right before this changed two years ago. The 70s quorum existed on a stake level and in each ward, the 70s in that ward would meet during the priesthood hour. And my basic understanding at the time was that pretty much the three different quorums of adult priesthood dealt with the three primary missions of the church. The elders quorum dealt with perfecting the saints. The high priest quorum dealt with temple work or redeeming the dead. And the 70s quorum dealt with missionary work or proclaiming the gospel. And I think what happened is that the leadership of the church started to feel like maybe all the different quorums should do all the different missions of the church. We shouldn't just have the elders quorum doing the perfect the saints and the high priest doing redeem the dead and the 70s doing proclaim the gospel. Really, every adult priesthood holder should be engaged in all three. This was creating an artificial distinction, and so they decided to do away with the stake 70s quorums. And this happened in 1986. Now, I was never a member of the 70s quorum, but I do remember them, especially from when I joined the church and went on my mission, because after I joined the church, right after graduating from high school, I worked at a couple of jobs between that time and the time I went on my mission. First, I worked as a gopher at an electric company in Kent, Washington. And then after that, I worked as a night watchman in Auburn, Washington. But through doing all of that, I was able to save up a bunch of money for my mission. But the money I saved wasn't enough to get me all the way through my mission. It was enough to get me outfitted for my mission, to buy all the clothes and all the supplies I needed to go to the MTC. It was enough to cover the airfare down to the MTC. It was enough to get me through the MTC. And it was enough to get me across the Pacific Ocean and landed in Japan. But after that, my money ran out. And it was my 70s quorum, because once again, they were in charge of missionary work. It was my 70s quorum that was kind enough to pony up half the cost of my mission. From that point on, my parents covered the other half of the cost. So I really appreciated the members of the 70s in my ward. And if it weren't for that, I probably would not have so specific a recollection of their existence. But once again, the existence of the 70s quorum on a stake level is a thing of the past because it was done away with in 1986. And it was done away with by announcement in priesthood session by then-President Ezra Taft Benson. So, once again, before I play this audio clip, because I am going to play the audio clip of Ezra Taft Benson making this announcement in priesthood session in October General Conference of 1986 of getting rid of the 70s quorums on a stake level. I just want to underscore once again that this is an almost identical kind of restructuring that happened in 1986 with getting rid of the 70s on a stake level and having the 70s meet with the other groups, with the two remaining groups, high priests or elders quorum, as happened in 2018 with President Nelson, who now got rid of the high priest group and had them meet with the elders quorum. So 1986, we've got three different quorums of adult priesthood in every ward. The 70s are gotten rid of in 1986. We come down to 2018. The high priests are gotten rid of and now there's just the elders quorum. The cheese stands alone. But here, let me play for you this announcement of this change by President Ezra Taft Benson. And what I want you to notice is the distinct difference in the language that is used in the way this restructuring is presented. Because what you will notice is that there is absolutely no reference to it being a revelation from God. There's no reference to it being inspired by God. There's no reference to it being the will of the Lord. As we heard from at least four speakers in the 2018 April General Conference about the recent change 
made by President Nelson. Instead, when President Ezra Taft Benson makes the announcement, it is simply a decision that has been made and it seems to be an effective decision and therefore the leadership of the church is going to do this and we've done it and we're announcing it now to you tonight. Play the tape. This is my humble prayer for each and every priesthood holder in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, brethren, I would like to read to you a statement recently approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. In harmony with the needs of the growth of the Church across the world, the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve Apostles have given prayerful consideration to the role of stake 70s quorums in the Church and have determined to take the following action relative thereto. One, the 70s quorums in the stakes of the Church are to be discontinued and the brethren now serving as 70s in these quorums will be asked to return to membership in the elders' quorums of their wards. Stake presidents, in an orderly fashion, may then determine who among such brethren should be ordained to the office of high priest. This change does not affect the first quorum of 70, members of which are all general authorities of the Church. Two particular emphasis is to be given to stake missions to cooperating with the full-time proselyting missionaries by finding, friendshipping, fellowshipping, and fostering member participation in all missionary activities. A missionary-minded elder or high priest will be called as the stake mission president, with his counselors being selected from among the elders or high priests. Additional detailed instructions regarding this announcement will be provided local priesthood leaders by letter from the First Presidency. At this time, we commend all who have served, both past and present, as members of Stake 70's quorums of the Church, and who have so ably given of their time, talents, and resources in spreading forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, my brethren. Peace be with you. The Lord bless you. We feel that this is appropriate in the interest of the farther and farther growth of the Church and Kingdom of God. Okay, so now we can compare the announcement made 
to get rid of the 70s quorum in 1986 by President Ezra Taft Benson and compare that announcement with the announcement in 2018 of President Nelson and his cohort of supportive apostles, Elder D. Todd Christofferson, Elder Ronald Rasband, and Elder Jeffrey Holland, and we can see a distinct difference. 1986, no claim of revelation to make an almost identical change in priesthood restructuring as was made in 2018, where they can't say it's revelation often enough. So what do we take from this? It is clear that the leadership of the church in the 1980s did not feel compelled to call a restructuring of the priesthood a revelation from God. Whereas a very similar restructuring in 2018 is called a revelation from God. Why the difference? I don't know the answer to that. I can only speculate at this point. What I can say for sure is that there is definitely a difference and I've played you the audio to demonstrate the difference. And one of the reasons I wanted to engage in this exercise is number one, because I think this is an important piece of the puzzle in the overall picture, this 1986 announcement by President Ezra Taft Benson. When we look at how it is that President Nelson characterizes all of his different changes in the church as being the result of revelation, even though that is not the way it has been in prior administrations with prior presidents. One possibility is that it is simply a difference in personality, that President Nelson sees himself differently than President Benson saw himself, or really that pretty much all the presidents of the church since Joseph Smith have seen themselves. President Nelson sees the ideas that he receives and the pronouncements he makes, even if they have been under consideration by the leaders of the church for years prior to his making the announcement as the result of revelation, and he wants the members to know it. So it may be a matter of personality. Two, it may be a matter of how it is that President Nelson sees himself as president of the church and how he believes the president of the church ought to behave. It is clear he is differentiating himself in this regard from past presidents of the church, but in his mind, maybe that's okay. He seems to have had a long-time pet project of calling the Mormon church the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and not calling it the LDS church or the Mormon church. And now that he is president of the church, he can put that pet hobby of his into effect and call it revelation from God. It is possible that he has also harbored a pet hobby about how it is that presidents of the church should present themselves, and he has thought that past presidents of the church, including those under whom he served, have not presented themselves the way a prophet should in his mind. And now that he is the president of the church, he will portray himself as a prophet the way he thinks a prophet should act. I think it is possible that most men, when they become president of the church, look at the prior president of the church and pattern their presidency sort of after what the last president did or the president before him, with the result that we don't typically get a lot of revelations being proclaimed. It is possible that President Nelson went all the way back to Joseph Smith and thought, I'm not going to pattern my presidency after President Hinckley or President Monson. I'm going to go all the way back to the fountainhead of Joseph Smith, and I am going to present my presidency in the same way that Joseph Smith did. I'm gonna pattern my presidency after Joseph Smith. It's possible that that's what's going on. And by the way, we shouldn't overlook the possibility, as I've mentioned before, that when you promote a heart surgeon to becoming the president of the church, you take a surgeon who typically already has a God complex, and then you put him in a position where he is sustained as being the prophet of God. So you've got a guy with a God complex combined with a guy who's a prophet of God, and maybe this is just the sort of thing that naturally happens when those two worlds collide. 
But another possibility strikes me, and I think it's an interesting possibility because we know that people have been leaving the church over the past decade or so. President Nelson has obviously been aware of this. He's been in all the meetings as an apostle. Now he's the president of the church. And he's got to know that a large number of those people who are leaving the church are leaving the church because they don't see the charismatic gifts or the revelatory claims on the part of the prophet and the apostles like they see it in church history with Joseph Smith. And because of that, a large number of members of the church are jumping overboard from the good ship Zion and swimming across the water to get on board the good ship Denver Snuffer. Because Denver Snuffer is busy claiming to receive revelations the way that Joseph Smith received them, to have charismatic gifts the way that Joseph Smith had them, and to see Jesus Christ the way that Joseph Smith claimed to see him. And whereas President Nelson is apparently not willing to go whole hog on this, he's not willing to claim he saw Jesus, he's not willing to claim to receive new scripture, although the new proclamation on the restoration revealed at the last general conference may be a pale imitation of the same, it is possible that his almost daily claims to revelation in making changes in the policies, procedures, organization, and nomenclature of the LDS Church are a response to and can be seen as being in competition with similar revelatory claims from Denver Snuffer. In other words, he may be trying to appeal to those members of the church who are tempted to go and join Denver Snuffer's crowd by claiming to receive revelation the same way that Denver Snuffer is claiming to receive revelation. It's just a thought that occurs to me. Ultimately, we will never know the real answer to this because it lies in the mind and heart of President Nelson. He certainly sees himself as a strong prophetic figure. He sees the ideas that he has even those ideas that come to him in the middle of the night as being revelation. He claims them as such. He even sees policies that have been talked about and discussed for years prior to their implementation as being revelation. Pretty much every darn thing he does is a revelation. I'm not sure the guy can go to the bathroom without a revelation. But this is why I call President Nelson's administration the Revelation Revolution. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.